Hello everyone, and welcome back to Cup of Taboo. I'm your host Tyler, and I know I haven't covered a serial killer in a really long time, so I figured, why the heck not cover one of America's first serial killers? You may have heard of him, or at least his home. <laughs> Today I am talking about H.H. Holmes and his murder castle. I hope you are ready for your dose of dark, violent, and terrifying, served in your cup of taboo. I know some things you don't know. I know some things you don't know. Okay, I'm just giving you a bit of a warning. I may be a bit creaky because I haven't done this in so long, but I do hope that I do not disappoint. Also, my computer is really old. I was recording my old episodes on my like old work laptop and obviously I had to give that back to the company when I moved companies and now I'm using my old ass personal laptop which is ship she's struggling she's struggling big time i'm not gonna lie to you but anyway i've I somehow managed to lose all of my little buttons at the bottom and my my technology savviness is uh also non-existent but you know what we persevere we push through we go through it anyway almost all of the information that i got on this human pile of dung came from a book called depraved by Harold Schechter. He is one of my favorite true crime authors. Uh, I think I've mentioned him in a couple of episodes that I've done. But uh, yeah, you really should go check out his stuff. I think it's really cool. Um, some people speculate that H.H. Holmes was actually America's first serial killer. So there is that. I think, you know, we can say that he was at least one of America, one of America's first serial killers that was caught. Eh? Anyway, I definitely think he was a psychopath. He was a nasty piece of work. And, um, yeah, his, I think his main motive was greed and, and power and money, but we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Also, on a side note, while I was researching for this, I somehow found a website that allowed you to do virtual autopsies. Real pictures of organs and things like that. Kind of terrifying. I'm so sorry. To my Google overseers, I promise you I'm not a creep. Well, I'm a little bit of a creep, but like, you know, only for the sake of the podcast, my dears, you know? Anyway, let me get into it. This all happened in the 1800s, so some of the dates and details may be a little bit hazy, but I will just tell you what I know from the sources that I used. Also, because this all happened over a hundred years ago, the story has somewhat morphed into something else over the years. If you've watched American Horror Story, uh, season five, I think it was, it was uh, American Horror Story Hotel, one of my favorite seasons, just because of the glamour and the drama and the nods to true crime and, you know, just Lady Gaga in general. Anyway, sidetracked. That hotel and its builder were loosely based off of H.H. H. Holmes and his murder castle. 
Also, now that I'm on this topic of American Horror Story Hotel, that hotel was also loosely based on the Cecil Hotel, which is the hotel that Richard Ramirez once stated, and the place where Eliza Lamb mysteriously died. So, the more you know. Let me officially begin my old-timey tale of fraud, affairs, and murder. Born on the 16th of May, around 1861, in New Hampshire as Herman Mudgett. <laughs> Lol. Doesn't sound like much of a serial killer, more like a Muppet with that name. He was born in a decent, decent family and was said to have shown signs of intelligence from an early age. His father was strict and some would say cruel, and his mother was a woman who did nothing about it. Herman was a small child and his small stature led him to being bullied by the larger boys. He recounts in his autobiography that one day when he was young he was taken into the doctor's office and they scared him with a real-life skeleton. He also said that this is where his interest in the human body began. He said that he wanted to be a doctor from a young age and it is also said that he would trap animals and perform slapstick, sur slapstick surgery on them. Obviously back then they were not aware of the whole child hurting animals probably means they'll turn into a murderous adult thing, but it is what it is. He never really had friends and the one friend that he did have, named Tom, died under mysterious circumstances after he fell from a rafter while he and Herman were playing in an abandoned house. Did Herman kill him? Nobody knows. I think he did. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I don't, I don't know. Nobody knows. Herman, at the tender age of 17, married a lady named Clara Loverington. He worked on her parents' land and then decided that, you know, he was going to go and become a doctor because I think they were quite rich. So, you know, so he did an apprenticeship with a local doctor who showed him how to do autopsies, you know, because that's how people became doctors back in the day. Like, hey, here's a dead body. Why don't you cut it open? Let's have a look. Ooh, <laughs> how exciting. He decided to formally go into medicine. So he started studying at the Dartmouth University. He then moved his studies to the University of Vermont, where he started studying officially medicine, formally. In less than a year, he ended up moving to the University of Michigan, and Clara's parents supposedly paid for this? I don't know. Anyway, him and Clara had a baby boy named Robert Mudgett. Their marriage, however, was not so good. It was not so good at all. He was said to be rather horrible, so eventually Clara took their son and left to go stay, stay back with her parents. Herman didn't really care, though, and he carried on with his studies. He got average grades, and there was some scandal surrounding him in general. In the boarding house where he was staying, he got into trouble for bringing corpses home. <laughs> what? Because, <laughs> you know, that's what uh, people do. They just bring bring home corpses. And uh, they said to him, dude, you, you can't do that. And he was like, I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I won't do it again. You're stinking up the place, dude. Stop it. He was also involved in some kind of sex scandal. He met a lady that he courted and managed to get into bed with him on the promise of marriage, but afterwards she found out that he was already married and left, accusing him of, like, false promises or something like that. He flat out denied this because, if it were true, they would not allow him to finish his degree and become a doctor. And obviously, because he was a man and this was the 1800s, they believed him. He also found out that there was quite a market for corpses at this time, and he found himself a little side hustle, grave robbing. The university did not have enough cadavers, so he provided them with the fresh-ish ones. But he continued his studies. He got average grades, um, not the best. He was caught again for bringing baby corpses into his 
residence, which again, what, dude, you have the issues? Um, but anyway, he eventually became a doctor, and when he did, he did tell his professor, oh, by the way, I lied when I said I didn't promise that woman to marry her. He was just a dick. Let's just put, he was just a straight-up dick. Anyway, I don't think he really joined the profession to help anyone. I think it was more for, like, morbid curiosity and uh, money. So anyway, once he graduated, he became a pharmacist, because I think that, like, you had to be a pharma. I mean, you had to be a doctor to be a pharmacist back then. I'm not, I'm not certain how it worked. It was very long ago, but that's he became a pharmacist in in Minneapolis, and he thereafter, shortly thereafter, moved to Chicago. But let me quickly go back in history to the late 1800s. Chicago, a city that was blossoming in an America that was rapidly growing. Inventions were happening and people started realizing the power of money. It was an age of growth for everyone and everything. Ambition was rife all over the country and Chicago was called the, in quotes, most American of American cities. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> By some people. There was a huge fire in 1871 which reduced Chicago to ashes, but the city rose like a phoenix and became the first skyscraper city. Say that fast five times. Became the first skyscraper city in 1885. In 1886, Mudgett moved to a small town on Chicago's outskirts called Inglewood. There was a drugstore called Dr. E.S. Holton's Drugstore that was situated at the corner of Wallace and 63rd Street. In July of 1886, Herman, who now called himself Dr. H.H. Holmes, waltzed into this drugstore and he asked if he could get a job there. The owner of the store... Okay, so there's, there are two stories. The one story is that the owner of the store was deathly ill and his wife had been running the busy store, so when Holmes walked into the store and asked if there was a job, she was like, oh my goodness, yes, please take take some responsibility from me because Holmes was supposedly strikingly attractive and very, very charming. So people instantly liked the blue-eyed, brown-haired, smooth talker. So he had told Mrs. Holton, the lady whose husband owned the store, that he was practicing medicine in Philadelphia and then decided it was time for a change. However, what he did not tell her was that a woman had been poisoned after ingesting medicine that Holmes had prepared for her on the morning of her death. So he ran away from Philly so that his name would not be tarnished. Uh, the story continues that, and it says that when Dr. Holton died, the owner, Dr. Holton, who was the owner of the store, Holmes proposed that he take over the store and pay Mrs. Holton for it in payments, and she agreed and asked that she could just remain in her flat that was above the store. So after a few months of owning the business, however, um, he hadn't paid her any parts of what he promised, and she kept having to threaten him with legal action. But one day she disappeared without a trace, and Holmes moved into the flat above the store almost immediately, telling anyone that asked that she had decided to move away to deal with her sadness. So, to me that sounds like he murdered her. But the, the other story is that um, Dr. E.S. Holton was actually her. And it was her store. And she sold it to him and, and moved away. Like that, that was the other story. I, I don't know which one is true. I don't know if they allowed women to become doctors in those days. I didn't look it up, but you can if you want to. Um, but yeah, I, I like the first story more. It sounds more like Holmes. Sounds more like murder. So obviously, like I was saying, you can see that this man, he's a dodgy dodger. 
but trust me, friends, he gets dodgier. In 1887, Dr. Henry Howard Holmes got married to Miss Myrta Z. Belknap, who he met on a business trip in Minneapolis after only knowing her for about a month. At first, she would help him in the shop, but soon after, she started spending less time in the shop. She was told to do house chores upstairs or go shopping, because having her in the shop kind of bummed his vibe, his flirty, flirty vibe that he had with all his female customers. He did love her in his own way, though, because in, in February of that year, he filed for, his, for a divorce from his first wife, Clara. I guess you could call that love, filing for the divorce after getting married. Anyway, after about a year of being married to Myrta, his incessant flirting was driving her up the wall and they were constantly fighting. She couldn't divorce him though because A, it was frowned upon and B, she was pregnant with his child. She eventually told her parents about what she was going through and they then moved into a townhouse in Wilmette, Illinois so that she could move in with them. Holmes agreed to provide financial support and to pay her regular visits. You know, to kind of get her off his hands. So he was alone again, and, and, you know, he was happy about that because he enjoyed being alone. He liked flirting. It got him what he wanted. He was a very flirty, flirty man. Um, he also apparently never really followed through with the divorce to Clara, so the marriage to Murta wasn't really legal as well. So there is that. When people asked Murta... A little. When people asked about Murta, um, he he made himself seem like the victim and told them that her, in quotes, condition was so bad that she had to go live with her parents, in quotes. Her condition being her moods, by the way. Poor Holmes. His wife is sick, so she must go, and he just he's just the husband who's so struggling at this point. Anyway, if you had to look at Holmes from from an outsider's perspective he was a typical ambitious businessman he wanted to you know his own real estate and he wanted to be really successful and all these things and and you know there happened to be a plot of land across from the drugstore which was for sale 63rd and wallace was the place to be it was a perfect place to build a huge building which would make for great business because of its location but, you know, he, he also supposedly had some dark desires that he wanted to put into play when he built this place. The year was 1888 when he secured the lease in the land, which happens to be the same time that Jack the Ripper was running rampant in London. And if you don't know about Jack the Ripper, he was a serial killer who viciously murdered prostitutes and literally ripped them apart, but with, like, surgical accuracy. Jack the Ripper taunted the police he was never ever caught to this day they still don't actually know who he was but there was rumors after everything came to light about Holmes that maybe he could have been Jack the Ripper so I doubt it but it would be an interesting it would be a very interesting thing because you know I mean I, I'm not going to go into it if you go listen to more but they've got a four-part series on Jack the Ripper and they do mention it so it's uh I think that would be cool not cool but I mean like it would be interesting it would be a a cool twist let's put it that way so anyway i do think that i should also do an episode on that because that'll be fun anyway holmes decided he wanted to build a massive building in this on this plot it was going to be three floors high just take up the whole thing like I'm, I'm using my hands now i'm trying to show you this taking up the whole thing so the street level floor would be shops second floor would have rooms for people to stay and the top floor would also have rooms for people to stay but I think one was supposed to be a hotel, the other one was supposed to be like lodging. But anyway, 
So anyway, before I get to this dodgy home, let me just quickly tell you about a man named Benjamin Peitzel. Benjamin Peitzel was a man from Kewanee, Illinois. Is it Illinois? Illinois. Illinois? Illinois. Ah. So, Ben, Benny, Benjamin, managed to get the daughter of a minister preg pregnant, pregnant, and, you know, they were forced to get married. Her name was Carrie, and their daughter's name was Desi. They went on to have a second daughter named Etta Alice Peitzel. And, uh, you know, Ben was only 23 at this point. He was six foot tall, muscular, and supposedly, supposedly a strikingly... A striking young man. He had jet black hair and a strong jaw, blue eyes. Dreamy. He actually really does sound like my type. Um, but, like, if I look at pictures, no. But, you know, if I read it like that, I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. One of the things that he did have was a lot of that. There was a big wart on the back of his neck. He uh, also did have a bit of a bad attitude. Like, he was a bit of a fighter. And on top of that, he uh, he was into the drink. Into the bottle. And he couldn't couldn't really ever get away from it. Uh, his nose was broken from bar fights. He had scars. He was he was he was worn. Eventually, him and Carrie had six children, one of which died very young. And um, yeah, his alcoholism was leaving the family wanting for more. He was a drifter for a long time, and he couldn't hold down a job, mostly because of the drinking. And the fighting and his general attitude, which is really sad because I think a lot of people go through that. But anyway, it's believed that the Peitzels arrived in Chicago in or around 1889 because in November of that year, Benjamin answered an ad in the paper for a carpenter needed in Inglewood for a new building. You, you see where I'm going with this? I promise, this all fits together like a puzzle. It's going to be a bit confusing at first, and you're going to be like, why the heck is she telling us about this now? What does this have anything to do with the story? It all fits together, I promise. You just have to listen carefully, and hopefully I actually do make sense. So, Benjamin, the ad that he answered in the paper, was for Dr. H. H. Holmes. And the job was a contractor job. And this job turned into Benjamin becoming Holmes's little sidekick, if you will. His little creature. His little creature of darkness. No, not really. Just like his sidekick. Like Holmes just used the shit out of him. So there was just a little side thing. Is that there was like rumors afterwards that Holmes had a hypnotizing power. Which is how he got away with so much. And how he managed to manipulate so many people. But I mean, I think he was just a psychopathic narcissist. Who sweet talked to everyone and got, you know, got what he wanted in that way. Because you know, I've met people like this. I have met people who will stop at Nothing. Nothing to get what they want and they okay maybe nothing far stretch but they they just do what serves them and nothing can stop them and that's kind of what it sounds like to me is he was what english is not with me today it's okay so the construction at 63rd and Wallace took place between the fall of 1888 and the spring of 1890. It was said to have been a very spectacular building. From the outside, it was large and square, and it was three stories high, as I said earlier. So it took up the whole lot, which is what made it so imposing, really, because there was no room around it. It was just like, boom, building. 
but the building took like weirdly long to get finished. So a year and six months was considered a very long time. They said that a building of that size should have taken a skilled crew only six months to complete. But the thing is, the crew was what was holding it up. Or should I say, the lack of consistency of the crew. Holmes was a slimy little snake. You see, you see, he didn't actually have the money that he needed to build this building. So what he did is he would hire people to do different parts of the building without showing them the full blueprint of what he had in mind. Then, when they were almost done with their specific little portion of the job, he would fire them and tell them that they'd messed up or that they'd wronged him in some way. And he would be like, no, I'm not paying you. So he would pay for their first like day's work and then tell them to finish the rest of the week and he would pay them the rest, and they would then do that section, and then he would be like, no, you did this wrong, you screwed up, I'm not paying you the rest. So, like I said, fraudster extraordinaire. They say the time that the building was completed that over 500 workmen had been employed at the site. Now, the reason he didn't want anyone on the site for too long, or to see what the other people were doing, besides the skeevy money-saving part, was supposedly much more sinister. If anyone knew what he was trying to do, they would definitely have spoken up. Now, like I said, some stories have morphed into this whole thing. But anyway, it was mostly for the the frauding of it all. <laughs> At this point, Benjamin was basically Holmes's pit bull. So if anyone tried to fight with Holmes for firing them, Benjamin would stand between them and uh, most people would back off. So it is said that Holmes wanted to build a house where he could murder people. <laughs> I mean, it, that's what the stories have become. In the book, it wasn't really explained that the reason for wanting to murder people was money, but, you know, I watched a couple documentaries and the whole thing, and they explained that because Holmes was so money-hungry, and in college he saw how well the illegal trade of bodies did, um, and how lucrative it could be, he figured he would just, you know, get into that field, build himself a giant human trap, if you will. Like, just ex like try and explain how dodgy this house was. There were stairways that led to nowhere, trapdoors, corridors that had no purpose, rooms with secret entrances, and so many more weird, creepy things. He, like, there was just, it just didn't make any sense. I'll, I'm going to post, uh, like, a little picture or two on my Instagram so that you can have a look at it. Uh, so you can see the blueprint. Well, the, I don't, would you call it, whatever, you'll be able to see the plan of the house or the building as well as the outside and you'll be able to see it. Just none of it makes sense. Either the either he's just really bad at designing things, or he had a reason that he did this. That's the thing. Like, there's no way that somebody would build something with this many weird points of entrance and trapdoors and nonsensical things without a reason, unless they just really suck at design. Maybe he <laughs> thought he could go into that, and he was like, ah, I'm actually really bad at this. Anyway, um, so what? Ha <laughs> Just to, again, show how, like, dodgy he was. He had this massive safe, like, walk-in safe delivered. And um, they put it, I think it was on the third floor. And he quickly had builders, like, build the room around it. And then when the safe people demanded their money for the safe, he said, like, you can take a safe back, but if you damage the building in any way, shape, or form, that he would sue the socks off of them. So they, after checking it out, left the safe right where it was and wrote it off as bad debt. He also had some other weird, strange items installed in the house that he claimed were for his pharmacological pursuits. That being a giant kiln with a cast iron door, a large zinc tank, a bunch of big vats that could store corrosives such as acid and quicklime, as well as asbestos-covered sheets, enough to line the walls of a few rooms. 
Nah, I think that this pistol is full soundproofing. I don't know. I think that's what it was. The bottom floor at street level was all for shopfront, as I said earlier. Here, Herman or Holmes, whatever you want to call him, rented out stores to people due to the position of the building. You know, he also started a couple of business businesses here in his own building, which, I mean, he if he just carried on doing what he was doing, I'm pretty sure that he would be pretty successful. Like the second and third floor, as I said, were used to house people, so he would make money from rent in these rooms. But the thing is, these rooms had pipes that led into them that Herman could control from his bedroom on the third floor that would leak out noxious gases. I mean, like, you see what I'm saying? Why does he have a control panel where he can let gases into rooms? It's a bit uh, spooky. Like, the second story was really dodgy. It said, like, that there were six passages with 51 doors, but only 35 rooms. Some were like bedrooms, others like, like some like had like beds and stuff in it, the others were just like the size of closets. Some were just empty and soundproof or airtight and like almost all of them had the gas pipes leading into them and up to Holmes's bedroom. Also the other thing is, they could only be locked from the outside and had peepholes into them. Can you just, just for an, just imagine for this moment, I want you to, if you're not driving, close your eyes, imagine you see this place and you're like, huh. I need a place to stay. This seems legit. And then you go inside. Ground floor seems normal with all the shops. And you're like, oh, this is a reputable business. This this looks good. Then you go upstairs and it's like you've walked through the looking glass kind of bullshit. And you've entered the upside down or something. Trying to get to room 202. Sorry, you'll have to open six doors and hope that you don't fall down a trapdoor to grisly death in the basement. Oh, you find your room well done. Now the creepy owner can watch you through the peepholes and possibly poison you while you sleep. No thank you. Anyway. The residents of uh, Inglewood started referring to this building as the castle. Later on, named that this name morphed into Murder Castle, Bluebeard's Castle, the Castle of Horror, etc., etc. You get it. As I said earlier, I don't know why he built this the way that he did it doesn't make any sense. I, I, I personally cannot put myself in the shoes of somebody building a, like a giant building to just murder people and be creepy and murdery about life. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't see it being, I don't understand why somebody would do that. But then at the same time, I'm like, why would somebody design a place to look like that like that doesn't make any sense man some say that the sole purpose of the huge building was just for the fraud that he committed through it so he would buy stuff on credit sell it for cash never pay back the credit he you know renting out the shops and scamming the store owners insurance fraud etc like like i said he's he was super money hungry he he was so money hungry i think he was the most money hungry that someone can be and um, I don't think he could ever be happy with a normal wage and a normal job. And he, I think he just couldn't do something for too long without getting bored of it and venturing on to the next thing. So I think he found it better to scam people than to actually work hard for the money. Hard for the money. So I've known about H.H. Holmes for a long time now. But uh, I only ever knew about it as the murder castle thing. I didn't know that there was just fraud everywhere. Like, wherever he stepped foot, it was just flawed. 
I didn't know how fraudulent he was until I'd done all the research on this and I was like, damn, this guy. This guy is on a whole other level. I don't know how the sound is going to be, but you know what? We're going to have to figure it out as we go along. Like I said, all my buttons have disappeared. In June 1890, only a month after finishing his castle, Holmes put his drugstore up for sale. Remember the one that he bought. Ensuring the prospective buyer that it was an extremely profitable business. Like, it was just doing so great. He even hired people to come into the store at that time to make it seem busier than it actually was. And then when he was asked why he was selling, he claimed that due to the success of the business, he had started so many other businesses which all required his attention. So obviously the person was like, oh, hell yeah. So he sold the store and he did what any upstanding citizen would do. He immediately opened his own drugstore in his own building. Pretty much driving the poor new guy out almost immediately. It's, uh, it's wrong. So also he was only 30 years old. Which, I mean, was basically ancient for those times, but... 30 years old, yep, owner of a drugstore, he's doing pretty good. Uh, but, you know, because it, at that time, like, 30 was old, he became more and more obsessed with earning more money, which means that he became more and more, like, schemy. And the fact that he wasn't arrested for some of the things that he did is shocking. Like, I mean, first of all, the entire building, he should be arrested for not paying his men. Um, he would make these in quotes, elixirs that would cure all, and, you know, the usual cheapskate stuff. He claimed he could bend glass, so he had a furnace installed for this purpose. This furnace happened to be the perfect size of a human, which they were like, is this a bit strange size for bending glass? He was like, don't, don't you dare presume to know how I do my work. I'm pretty sure he said something along those lines. Um, he also did somehow actually get involved in an actual legit business, uh, some kind of copy machine business but uh, even that he he ended up swindling his way through the world with that as well so like I said he just couldn't couldn't hold down a normal thing so late in 1890 a couple named Ned and Julia Connor and their daughter Pearl came upon Holmes's castle Ned was a jewelry maker and he was struggling to make money so he moved the family to Chicago in hopes of a better life and Holmes owned a jewelry shop that needed a manager Ned got the job and they moved into one of the apartments in the castle. Not surprisingly, Holmes and Julia started having an affair because this is what he does. And, you know, Ned tried to ignore all the whisperings, but it eventually became too much and he left Julia. Julia, who was said to have been very headstrong and smart, also six foot tall, stayed with Holmes and he gave her the position of cashier at his pharmacy. After a while, she asked to do the books for him and go to business school. But Holmes was growing tired of her at this point. He agreed to these ideas of business school and bookkeeping, but he already had plans of getting rid of her. Sometime in November, it is believed that Julia fell pregnant, so she told Holmes that they had to marry. He agreed to divorce Myrta and marry her on one condition, and that was the condition that she have an abortion and allow him to do it. She agreed to this eventually, and the date was set for December 24th, 19, 1891, sorry. Not much is known about what happened that night. All that they really can say is that he put Pearl to bed, and then supposedly per performed the abortion on Julia. In January of 1892, 
Holmes discovered that an employee of his, Charles Chappelle, had a unique skill which could serve in his devious ways. Charles was skilled at mounting skeletons. Not like mounting them like a dog would mount a pillow, but you know how they're hung in science labs, articulated and all that? Most of them are plastic nowadays, I hope, but back then at medical schools they wanted real-ass bones. So when Holmes approached Chappelle about the subject, he took him to a room on the second floor where there was a partially dissected cadaver on the table. He offered the man around $36, which is around $1,172 in today's money, which is around 20,000 rand, to strip the corpse of its flesh and mount it. Chappelle agreed and got to work, assuming that this was just a post-mortem that Holmes had done on a patient, because remember... A week later, the bleached skeleton was returned to Holmes, who sold it to the Hanuman Medical College for $200. It was then sold to a doctor, who was amazed at how tall the skeleton was for a woman. Around six feet tall. Dun dun dun! Just uh, in case you're wondering, it's, it's believed that that was Julia Connor. Yeah. So in April of this year, Peitzel went to like an old-timey rehab, if you will. Didn't really work out for long, but yeah. And he met a lady named Emmeline Sigrand, a beautiful 24-year-old lady who worked at the doctor's rooms where Peitzel was for, like, attending his, like, rehab stuff, after whatever it was called. Peitzel returned and told Holmes all about her, and Holmes wrote her a letter offering a job as his private secretary. In May, she moved to Englewood to pursue this new adventure. Obviously, Holmes, being the slimeball that he was, seduced her, and within months they were lovers, secretly of course. But soon she expected him to marry her, and he spun some story that she should refer to him as Robert E. Phelps. I can't remember what the story was, but he was like, this is my name, Robert E. Phelps. And, like, she was like, okay, okay cool, cool, cool. She wrote to her friends and loved ones, telling them what a lovely man he was, yada, 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 and they were set to be married in December gave her a dozen white envelopes, and he asked her to address them to her closest family and relatives. He said he wanted to have formal wedding announcements printed up. This was a lie. Sometime during the first week of December, Holmes called Emmeline into his office and asked her to get a note in the big walk-in vault. Remember the one that he had installed? And when she entered the vault to find the note, Holmes swung the door shut behind her and locked it. Now, I don't know how true this next part is, because, you know, things change. But in the book, it is said that whilst Holmes, while Holmes listened to her scream and panic and struggle to you know, get out and breathe because it was airtight, he supposedly sat and masturbated while listening to her die. Like I said, no proof, just reporting what I read. Just, I'm just letting you know. I wouldn't be surprised. On the 17th of December, Emmeline's family and friends all received letters in the mail that a card that had a card inside that read, Mr. Robert Phelps, Miss Emmeline Sagrand, married, Wednesday, December 7th, 1892, Chicago. Not many weeks after her disappearance, the LaSalle Medical School became the owner of a female skeleton acquired from Dr. H. H. Holmes. Like I said, he was making cash dollar from this. So, it's business now, and... He gets bored of things quickly, so woman, he gets bored of woman. Anyway, so I, I, I'm just taking another departure quickly from from Holmes for a, a brief moment. There's this thing called the World's Fair that happened. It still happens, I believe. 
It's uh, an expo where they hope to provide a glimpse into the future. I think it's now called the World's Expo, though. It was recently in Dubai, and the next one will be in Japan in 2025. In 1893, it was held in Chicago, and they called it the World's Columbian Exposition. They wanted to celebrate the 400-year anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the New World. They built the city almost, like a town, almost, made for the expo. They called it the White City because it all appeared to be marble and it was huge. Marked by a giant lake with huge halls and statues surrounding it. Very, really pretty, like very like old school. I'm sorry if you can hear the alarm beeping in the background. Um, you know, shade living. Um, one of the revolutionary concepts at this fair was the widespread use of electric power, and it was also dubbed the Illuminated City because of this. This was the first fair to be powered by electricity. Imagine that, in a time where electricity was still so new that people were excited by lights. Incredible. History is fun. One of the other grand attractions was the first Ferris wheel, built by George W. Ferris, which is pretty cool. Side note, we have one here in Cape Town. Well, we had one. Drove past it the other day and it was like, mostly torn down. So I was like, what? This looks straight up out of a post-apocalyptic thing. They're apparently just relocating it, but uh, thought I'd put that in there. Anyway, back to the 1800s I go. Apparently, over the six months that the fair was around, over 27 million people visited it. The reason I bring this up is because, obviously, with all these people visiting, there was a high demand for lodging. And who happened to have basically two floors of rooms available? Yup, you guessed it. H.H. Holmes did. Now, some sources say that he killed many, many, many people during this time, and other sources say that the rooms weren't even equipped or meant to have visitors in them. But, I mean, who's to say, really? Holmes did write a a tell-all book while he was in prison, Uh, But he's also a filthy liar, so he can't really be trusted. And he said that he only killed one fairgoer. Many speculate that he killed many, many more. Now I move on to the next unlucky soul who ran into Holmes. Her name was Minnie Williams. It's not really so clear how they met, but what is known is that in March 1893, Minnie showed up in Chicago and started working for Holmes. And surprise, surprise, became his mistress. This guy got a lot of booty for a... Or a short schemer, I'm just saying. Minnie was described as a simple woman, short and chubby, also not smart, but what she did have was spunk, we'll go with. She was lovely. She also was the heiress, heiress to a large fortune. Minnie's parents had tragically died when she was a child, and she was taken in by an uncle who died later on, leaving her with a ranch in Texas worth about $40,000. That's a shit ton of money in today money. Around one million three hundred and sixteen dollars nine hundred and thirty seven cent nope, that was all wrong. One million three hundred and sixteen thousand nine hundred and thirty seven dollars. That's about uh, twenty two and a half million rands, just in case anyone wanted that. That's basically a one bedroom apartment in Camps Bay. <laughs> Anyway, Holmes somehow convinced Minnie to sign the deed of that property over to his name. Somehow, I don't know how, but like I said, she was a very simple, naive lady. Problem was that now Holmes needed a way to actually make money from this property. Besides the fact that it was so far away, Minnie also had a sister named Nanny, who Holmes needed to get rid of. Like I said, he was a scheming, conniving slimeball that would stop at nothing to get what he wanted. So he put his plan into motion and told Minnie to invite Nanny over to the fair. 
so that he could meet her and show her how great Chicago was. So during the second week of June, Nanny made the trip from Texas to Chicago. They did the typical sightseeing over the next few days, and Holmes somehow got Nanny to write to her uncle, telling him how amazing it was and how they would be traveling and then going abroad to Germany. He was such an evil scumbag. If anyone ever tells me to write a letter to my family, I'll be like, no, I shan't. Especially with the envelopes, like he did to poor Emmeline. If anyone ever says to you, hey, uh, please will you just address these 20 envelopes to all your closest family and friends? Like, run. Run a mile. Do not do it. They are planning on murdering you. I listened to something the other day where somebody did the same thing, and the person, the murdered, murdered. Don't do it. One afternoon, he told Minnie that she needed to stay in the flat because they were staying in a flat together, not in the castle. And he would quickly take Nanny to go see the castle. And he took her there and presumably offed her in the vault like he had done to Emmeline. He then apparently murdered Minnie too. Not really much was said about how, but that's the story. Once he got rid of the Williams sisters, he could focus on a woman who he had, in quotes, fallen in love with. I say that because I'm not sure if Holmes was capable of love. Anyway, her name was Georgiana Yoke, a beautiful, petite, blonde woman who was said to have eyes so large that they were disfiguring. Imagine that, being called disfigured because of your beautiful big blue eyes. They started a whirlwind romance pretty soon after the Williams disappeared. Georgiana was said to be quite intelligent and lovely. Holmes did, of course, lie to her from the beginning, and shame, she really, like, he really took her through it. He spun her some bullshit story about how his parents had both died and he promised to take his uncle's last name or something like that and that's how he came across the surname Howard. And she believed him. The thing is, as Herman Mudgett, he was still married to Clara. As Henry Howard Holmes, he was married to Murta. So he couldn't really marry Georgiana without changing his last name first. She just didn't know that, though. H.H. Holmes, Henry Howard Holmes, I think that's what... Anyway, shortly after he proposed marriage to Georgiana sometime in October... The top floor of the castle just somehow burst into flames. See, Holmes had taken out close to $25,000 worth of insurance on the building, and this was another schemey thing. He was not exactly great at the insurance fraud thing just yet, and he, you know, he was like, I'm going to try this. Like, tried to claim almost immediately, and they caught onto his ways and did not pay out the policy. Somehow, though, he did avoid imprisonment, um, but he just didn't get paid out. He was set now at defrauding insurance companies, because, like, he was like, okay, cool. I'm gonna... I've heard of some really successful fraud stories. Insurance fraud. And uh, this is the way to go. This is how I'm gonna become rich. So all he needed was a willing accomplice. Good thing he had poor Benjamin Peitzel to manipulate. The plan was set. Holmes was going to start paying life insurance payments on Peitzel. And the insurance would be set at $10,000. He would then get a corpse from somewhere and disguise it as Peitzel to fake his death, and then they would split the money. Peitzel agreed to it, obviously, so Holmes started paying the premiums to Fidelity Mutual Life Association. And that's what I've got for this episode, guys. Part 2 will be up in a few days. Maybe a week. Just because this is such a long case, I really don't want to... Like, I, I want to get into as much detail as I possibly can. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that what Holmes does will just astound you. Astound you! The fact that they haven't got someone to make this like into a big time movie like Leo DiCaprio playing Holmes or someone like that. His life and crimes really are like, worthy of a Hollywood blockbuster. It's weird that it isn't one. 
Anyway, it also turns out that Meghan Markle is related to him somehow, like great-great-great-granddaughter, I think, or something like that. <laughs> what? The more you know. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Please leave a rating and a review and a five-star and, you know, all the things. I would appreciate it. And please come back for part two. In the meanwhile, you can follow me on Instagram at cupoftaboo underscore podcast. On Facebook, Cup of Taboo. Email me on cupoftaboo at gmail.com. And yeah, that is it, I guess. Come back for more when part two comes up. I think you will enjoy it. I'm going to talk about his uh, extreme fraud and his final murders and how he got caught. It's an interesting, interesting tale. And I am quite shocked and surprised that it is not as well known as what it should be. Anyway, keep well. Bye!